Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. Today is Thursday, March 31st. Here are some of the stories we're covering this morning. After by-elections in Zimbabwe, newly elected lawmakers prepared to fill parliament and local government seats that became vacant due to party recalls and deaths of incumbents. With more than 60% of our entire population, Having received at least first dose of COVID-19 vaccination, we remain one of the most vaccinated countries in the world. Botswana is on the verge of discarding expiring COVID-19 vaccines as the country faces considerable vaccine hesitancy. I think that Africa is going to uh, seek military hardware and assistance from uh, whoever is offering the most attractive terms. And wide-ranging comprehensive sanctions on Russia in a bid to cripple its ability to participate meaningfully in the global economy could affect Africa's ability to procure and maintain military hardware from Russia. Those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. At the start of this year, Botswana celebrated the procurement of millions of COVID-19 vaccines, but the Southern African country is on the verge of discarding expiring doses. Most of the vaccines will expire in April as the country faces considerable vaccine hesitancy. From Habarone, Botswana, reporter Mukundisi Dube has the details. By the end of January, Botswana had more than 3 million vaccine doses in stock thanks to a successful procurement program. But as fewer people step forward to get the jab, some vaccines have expired with more due to be discarded in April. Minister of Health Edwin Dikolodi told Parliament about the problem. We have expired drugs. AstraZeneca has expired, but for now I don't have amount and the cost. People are reluctant to take the booster dose. We plead with you as parliamentarians to urge the population to vaccinate. Despite some public reluctance to take the jab, Dikolodi says the country is on course to meet World Health Organization WHO vaccination targets. With more than 60% of our entire population having received at least first dose of COVID-19 vaccination, we remain one of the most vaccinated countries in the world and one of the four countries in Africa that met the WHO target of reaching 40% vaccination threshold by December 2021. We are well on course, Mr. Speaker, to reach the new 70% target set by WHO for countries to have reached by mid-2022. The Minister of Health spokesperson Christopher Nyanga says 29,000 doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine already have expired. Nyanga calls on the population to vaccinate before more doses expire. This comes amid concerns people are dropping their guard since COVID-19 cases and deaths have declined sharply over the months. The ministry encourages all those eligible to take up boosters in order to keep their immunity against COVID-19 high. Members of the public are further encouraged to keep following all COVID-19 protocols since the pandemic is still with us. Nyanga says as of March 25, the country still had 2.9 million unused doses of the vaccine. Since the pandemic broke out, Botswana spent more than $60 million procuring almost 6.5 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines to vaccinate its nearly 2.5 million people. For VOA, this is Mkondisi Dube in Haburuni, Botswana. 
Following its invasion of Ukraine, countries of the North Atlantic Treaty Alliance and NATO imposed comprehensive sanctions on Russia in a bid to cripple its ability to participate meaningfully in the global economy. The wide-ranging sanctions could affect the continent's ability to procure and maintain military hardware from Russia. Reporter Angie Omar discussed the risks and opportunities of this analysis with Cameron Hudson, a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and the former chief of staff at the office of the U.S. Special Envoy to Sudan in the U.S. Department of State. I think that the world is trying to isolate uh, the Russian economy. One of the aspects of Russia, their trading relationship with the with the continent is is arms sales figure very prominently and heavily. But I would also suggest that it has not been beneficial to the continent to have uh, those arms sales, especially when you look at uh, the principal purchasers of those, namely Sudan. So the fact that Russian arms may be less available on the African continent as, I think, uh, not necessarily a bad thing. Almost half of Africa's imports of military equipment, 49%, come from Russia. By comparison, China accounts for 13% of the continent's arms imports. Do you think Africa might shift to China for its military exports instead of Russia? Well, I think that Africa is going to uh, seek military hardware and assistance from Uh, whoever is offering the most attractive terms and offering the most attractive uh, hardware for the needs. I mean, obviously, you have to look at some of the conflicts that are playing out in Africa right now, and you're seeing that it isn't just a question of Russia or China. The United Arab Emirates, Turkey, Kuwait have become significant players. Egypt, a significant player in arms sales uh, across the continent. And so I think you're going to see a diversity of actors that are engaging in in arms sales, uh, taking over, filling the vacuum and void left over by the, the Russian involvement. The biggest buyers of armaments from Russia and most uh, long-standing importers are Algeria, Angola, Burkina Faso, Egypt, Serbia, Morocco, and Uganda. Egypt and Algeria are in the top 10 list of major importers in the world. Could the U.S. and Western countries replace Russia in arms sales to Africa? I think that that's not something that the United States would be particularly well-placed to do, given, I think, the the agenda that Washington has in trying to limit conflict on the continent. I think you're seeing right now a lot of effort to to try to move away from a purely securitized approach to dealing with African countries and engaging African countries. You know, you've seen the number of coup d'etats in uh, in Africa sharply rise in the last six months. And I think there's some questioning here in Washington about whether or not, you know, a military first approach to engaging African governments is in fact the right approach, especially with the Biden administration trying to say that it is placing a new emphasis on democracy and governance issues on the continent. So I think it would it would run counter to the message that we are prioritizing uh, democracy, I think, by uh, trying to step in and somehow capitalize on a retreating Russian arms industry in Africa. That was Cameron Hudson of the Atlantic Council speaking to reporter Angie Omar. In Uganda, new research funded by the International Organization for Migration shows that the country is highly vulnerable to the impact of climate change. The study says the severe effects of environmental degradation are increasing food insecurity, 
poverty and forced migration. Reporter Mugume Davis Rwakarinji has more from Kampala. Rovokatas Twinomohanji is a lecturer at Makere University employed by the Research and Innovation Unit of the Center for Climate Change. He's also the lead researcher of the report that assesses the interaction between migration, the environment, and climate change in Uganda. He says that the cutting and burning of trees and bushes, as well as encroachment on wetlands, have led over past three decades to a growing number of droughts, floods, landslides, and erratic or intense rain patterns. He says this result in hunger and starvation and displacement of thousands of people. When people migrate and they go into another area, you, you are not only looking at the social amenities, but also they end up degrading the environment further where they have gone. For example, you, have, you, you look at the issue of refugees. In all areas where we have refugee settlements, uh, forests have been cleared, wetlands have been uh, degraded uh, quite seriously. The report shows that climate and environmental changes don't just lead to hunger, but water shortages, rising poverty and disease outbreaks. Uganda's Minister of Environment, Beatrice Atim Anwar, welcomes the findings. She says they will help the government to create policies to protect the environment. We have come to fast track uh, in the data which is already produced to help us prepare and plan and even engage these migrants into restoration programs like a tree planting, like, like giving them alternative sources of life food, you know, like giving them uh, alternatives to energy uh, provisions. She says the government is working with activists to sensitize communities on the dangers of degrading the environment. One of the activists is Joseph Masembe, who heads a local NGO called Little Hands Go Green. This organization teaches children to plant trees and remove plastic waste in their communities. Masembe says it's important to nurture young people to love and safeguard their environments. We are growing old. If we do not create a generation of children and people that from the onset understand the need to take care of the environment, the need to conserve, the need to protect, when they grow up, they'll be wasted. But if we teach them at a tender age, then it means that as they grow, in 10 years, 20 years from now, these children will have grown up with not only the love for conserving the environment, but having better understanding of how to protect their areas. Tinomu Hanji says the government has to have environmentally friendly policies in all development projects. It's not an option because we have one environment, we have one planet. The environment provides us ecosystem services, uh, the clean air that we breathe, uh, the fresh water that we use, the energy, the fiber, the climate regulation. Tinomu Hanji reminds us that the environment is actually a sophisticated system. And what happens in one part of the country affects other parts. Activists say that is all the more reason to care to protect water, ground and air now before they become intractable problems tomorrow. For VOA News, I am Mugume, Davis Ruakarinji Kampala, Uganda. The United States Ambassador to Somalia, Larry Andrea, has condemned deadly Al-Shabaab attacks in Mogadishu and in Baladwain last week, which killed dozens. 
The complex attack on Mogadishu's heavily fortified airport on March 23rd killed at least seven people, including five foreigners, according to Somali police spokesperson Major Abdifata Aden Hassan. This attack was followed by more deadly twin explosions in Baledwine that claimed the lives of 48 people, including a female lawmaker, Amina Mohamed Abdi. Andre said the attacks were intended to prevent the revival of Somalia. On the line to Mogadishu, Palestine Iman asked him his reaction to the attacks. Our reaction is that we condemn uh, those who seek to murder uh, and destroy. Uh, they're, they're stopping the revival of Somalia, and they're taking many lives in doing so. We support those who seek to build a secure, prosperous, and peaceful Somalia. Uh, that is uh, what our cooperation uh, with the Somali authorities, with the Somali people, with uh, Somali uh, civil society is all aimed at. Uh, it is in the interests of uh, the American people uh, to see a successful Somalia, uh, and uh, certainly we want to see a successful region, successful Horn of Africa, and that uh, cannot be achieved without the full revival of, uh, of Somalia uh, as a prosperous, uh, democratic, and peaceful country. And uh, these acts of murder uh, on a mass scale prevents um, achievement of that full revival. So who do you think al-Shabaab was targeting in that attack at the airport? You would have to ask them. I know uh, that there were individuals uh, murdered um, in the, uh, near the marina gate, and later um, in the day, there were mortars fired that came very close to uh, our embassy. Uh, it also came close uh, to uh, the U uh, United Nations compound, and it landed in the United Nations compound, landed in the international compound, and some landed at sea. So I would imagine uh, that those were their targets, but initially uh, they were just killing whoever they could uh, near the marina uh, gate. They often just kill uh, indiscriminately. Um, that is what they do. Uh, they are murderers. Mm -hmm. So do you get any um, intel briefing about how the attack was planned or who helped them to attack this area, which we know is a high security area? There is an ongoing investigation by multiple organizations. And to be very honest with you, um, if I knew, it would not be wise to say. Um, you would want uh, to wait first uh, for all of the investigations to be concluded and for the appropriate authorities to then de uh, decide uh, how that information can uh, be used appropriately. So at this point, all I know for certain is that there are ongoing investigations. Yeah, it has been reported that the U.S. president was advised by Pentagon officials to send U.S. troops back to Somalia. Do we know the timeline of retaining U.S. troops to Somalia, and is there need for that now? Any decision uh, that the president may make will also involve uh, the coordination uh, with Somali authorities. So any additional military uh, cooperation that we wish to offer uh, the Somali people to defend themselves, uh, uh, it would uh, require the coordination and uh, approval of the appropriate Somali authorities. So no such decision has been made at this time. And when that time comes, 
uh, it would be an offer on our part that the Somali authorities would decide uh, if there was a need for it, and we would leave it at that. That was the United States Ambassador to Somalia, Larry Andre, speaking with VOA's Palestine Iman. Rights group Amnesty International has issued a scathing report on the failure of global drug companies and Western governments to quickly provide COVID vaccines to millions of people in Africa. In its annual report, Amnesty says tens of thousands of deaths could have been prevented if companies put people before profits and if governments were less nationalistic. Mohamed Yusuf reports from VOA's Africa News Center in Nairobi. In its report for 2021, Amnesty International says Africa was discriminated against by wealthy nations and international corporations who failed to quickly distribute COVID-19 vaccines. Speaking in Nairobi, Deputy Regional Director of Amnesty International East Africa, Sarah Jackson, said African countries were among the last to get the vaccines. We see a global system that has prioritised vaccines for the few that has prioritised vaccines for wealthy countries. And there's been very limited vaccine rollout in this region. And yet at the same time, there are a whole host of problems that have arisen in the way in which vaccines have been distributed. They're often coming in at, at short notice with very limited expiry dates. And this makes it very difficult for governments to build effective information campaigns to overcome distrust and misinformation that is prevalent among some segments of the population. African governments have struggled to purchase vaccines in the global market due to high demand and scarcity. Some African countries accuse wealthy nations of hoarding vaccines. Erestas Mwencha, a former deputy chairperson of the African Union Commission, echoes that view. Apartheidism of a vaccine, I mean you saw in the global north, vaccines that were expiring when actually global south. In other words, Africa is, is seen as, as a nuisance value, but yet if you think of even the pandemic, there's no way the rest of the world can be happy if Africa is sick. In its effort to make vaccines more available on the continent, the Africa Centers for Disease Control has pushed for greater production of vaccines on the continent. The push has paid off as American pharmaceutical giant Moderna is expected to set up vaccine production plants in five African countries. The Amnesty report praised Rwanda for vaccinating 40% of its population. Researchers were also encouraged by the effort of Burundian and Tanzanian authorities to focus more on the pandemic after they initially rejected health measures to contain the virus. Still, only 10% of Africans are vaccinated, the lowest rate among all the world's continents. Amnesty International also accused some African governments of using COVID health protocols to control or to punish their citizens. Jackson says the government used lockdowns and restrictions of movement to abuse people. We've seen that a number of governments in the region, particularly actually the year before in 2020, but also sometimes in, in 2021, have limited the right to freedom of assembly. I'm thinking particularly of the Ugandan context around the Ugandan elections in the name of, of COVID-19. And this has impacted the rights of, of citizens to, to organise, to assemble. Amnesty International is calling on African citizens to stand up for their rights and resist any attempt to muzzle their voices. The rights groups will be launching a global campaign demanding respect for the right to protest. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi.
Tanzania is stepping up efforts to join the club of liquefied natural gas LNG exporters as Russia's invasion of Ukraine spurs Europe to look for new energy sources. Tanzania says investments in its first LNG project could reach $40 billion. Charles Kombe reports from Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. The Tanzanian government said it planned to conclude talks in June with a group of foreign oil and gas companies led by Norway's Econo on developing a liquefied natural gas terminal. Tanzania has an estimated 17 trillion cubic meters of gas reserves, which puts it in position to benefit from Europe's rush to diversify its energy sources. Analysts say the sale of LNG on the international market will generate huge revenues for the nation. Walter Nguma is an independent economic analyst. He says many Tanzanians will be employed and the country will increase government revenues through foreign income. In the project, the country will also have enough gas energy for its own needs. When you look, he says, the world is expected to use LNG in cars by 2030 to preserve the environment. So this is a potentially big project. In an interview with Bloomberg, Tanzanian President Samia Hassan said embracing the private sector is her major priority. She said that it's only the private sector that can bring foreign direct investment and create jobs. Hassan has expressed her commitment to fast-track the development of natural gas resources for the benefit of the nation. However, James Tumaini, a Dar es Salaam resident and project manager from Zumbe University, said the LNG market is extremely competitive, which might make it hard for Tanzania to penetrate it. He says the government should ensure a friendly environment in implementing this project. Since there are other countries with the same product, competition is high. So the government should stand firm on this, he says. The LNG project will be Tanzania's biggest project, and the earliest the country will be able to ship the gas is 2030, if there are no further delays. Charles Kombe, for VE News in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more news and features, visit our website at voenews.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington, wishing you a great day. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and a panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including a new round of peace talks aimed at ending Russia's invasion of Ukraine began in Turkey. As Russia shelling continues throughout Ukraine, despite the Kremlin announcing new battle plans focused on the eastern region. Join us for issues in the news this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music. From bobo music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, Afrobeat to Ndombolo and Makosa to Kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 09.05 and 20.05 UTC right after the international news. 
Hello, I'm Douglas Simpoga, host of VOA's Reporters Roundtable. Join us every Thursday as we discuss important African topics and events. I'll have a panel of African journalists and expert guests to discuss the topic at hand. We take a deeper look at important after-news topics. That's Reporters Roundtable every Thursday at 17.30 UTC, right here on VOA Africa. Hey, sports fans, brighten your day by tuning in to the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 16.30 and 18.30 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on The Voice of America. <laughs> <laughs> 